Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. As the capitalist world tears at itself, who stands to gain? Global capitalism is in its deepest crisis since the 1930s, exacerbated by the Great Accelerator, COVID-19 pandemic and depression. There is turmoil on every continent, class battles and uprisings, rising authoritarianism, polarisation within and between nations. Meanwhile, the trade union and new left leaders have more and more accommodated themselves to capitalism's demands. The United States is a harbinger for the 2020s. Constitutional crisis is on the cards. Internal and international tensions, conspiracy theory mysticism, and dangerous right-wing forces are on the rise. Is fascism the same threat as it was a century ago? What is the difference between fascism then and right-wing authoritarianism today? Why does this matter? And how can socialists navigate these choppy waters to build the urgent alternative? This episode of Socialism looks at crumbling capitalism, revolution and counter-revolution today. Now, often these CWI broadcasts focus on a particular country or a region of the world. But today we're going to be looking at the whole world in its entirety because the International Secretariat of the CWI has just produced a statement which is about the world situation today, about world perspectives. And you can read that on the CWI website, which is socialistworld.net. And today we're going to be discussing some of the content of that statement. Now, it's clear that the world situation is highly unstable, highly turbulent, and therefore it's absolutely essential to regularly assess and examine, really, from a working class standpoint, from a Marxist standpoint, what are the processes taking place, what are the trends taking place, and what is the balance of forces in the world at the present time, in societies across the world. Now, responding to the points that I'm going to raise on the statement today, I'm pleased to say that we've got Tony Sonwa, who is the secretary of the CWI. And you might have seen Tony in these broadcasts normally on the presenting side, posing the questions. But today, Tony is going to be responding to a few questions about this statement, which, as I said, you can read for yourself online. Now, turning to Tony then. Tony, the opening paragraph of the statement refers to the breakneck speed at which the economic, political and social crisis is unfolding. And it also refers to the misery that's being inflicted on millions of people across the globe, which it says is on a scale not seen for an entire historical era. Now, clearly the speed and scale referred to here is clearly worsened by the COVID pandemic. But it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it, in terms of what's come before and also what is to come? Well, thanks, Judy. Well, yes, in a one-word response, it does go much deeper than that. Because what we see here is, of course, we're dealing with COVID, which on every single aspect of economy, politics, 
social and geopolitical relations has been the great accelerator. It's the great accelerator in terms of its effects on political parties, on the crisis that it produces in political parties, and it's been the great accelerator in terms of exposing the character of capitalism today. Now, that said, I think it's important that we also underline the point that all of the features we now see developing globally of massive polarisation between the classes, of the vast inequalities which have developed under capitalism, of the brutality of capitalism reflected in the misery which has been heaped upon the backs of millions of working people throughout the world in terms of starvation in Africa, Asia, Latin America. All of those trends were present prior to the developments of COVID. Now, if we take the economic situation, which is paramount, if we look what was taking place globally before the pandemic hit, what did we see? We saw the slowing down of the economy, some economies already going into recession. We've seen the accumulation of an incredible amount of global debt. It accounted for 250 trillion US dollars of total global debt before the pandemic hit. We're on the brink of a financial crisis and then we're going to be plunged into a situation of recession resulting in mass unemployment and with consequences probably far worse than the great crash of 2007-2008. We'd also seen the tensions developing between US imperialism the most important and powerful imperialist power on the planet, but still coming into increasing competition with the growth which had taken place of China, and it was bringing them into conflict. We've seen a process, as the CWI had explained, of a deglobalization was beginning to set in in terms of a reversal of the globalization processes that took place. And that was resulting, those factors in all sorts of tensions developing on a geopolitical basis in a whole series of regions of the world. Now, all of that has been catapulted forward by probably five years in terms of the consequences of those trends, in terms of not being faced with the pandemic itself. We see a growing tendency towards the clash between US imperialism and China. We see the tendency towards deglobalization and reflected in the outbreaks of regional clashes around the world, not only between China and the United States. We see China clashing with India. We've seen the recent developments, of course, in Armenia and Azerbaijan, which has taken place. The prospect of a conflict almost that they just averted it but between Greece and Turkey over gas supplies in the Mediterranean which would have pitted by the way two NATO players against each other and all of that's been vastly accelerated and most importantly within it the class antagonisms in every single country have been vastly accelerated as the pandemic and its consequences have hit home. So it does go deeper than just the COVID crisis, but what it is pointed to is that we're now into an era of turbulent upheavals for the foreseeable future. We're into an era of recession and depression economically, and we're into an era of polarized and bitter class struggles that are taking place as the forces of reaction and revolution struggle for dominance. Thanks, Tony. And it's clear that within the long-term process of capitalist decline that's outlined in the statement, there is now a prolonged, drawn-out cycle of economic crisis across the world, which is definitely being worsened by the pandemic. Now, I just wanted to draw your attention to the title of the statement, which actually is a kind of subtitle because it starts with world perspectives. And then It's got the subtitle, Revolution and Counter-Revolution, Who Stands to Gain? Now, clearly, revolution 
in the title is a reference to the major protests that have been taking place around the world. But just wanted to ask you about the phrase counter-revolution, which is referring to the rise in prominence of right-wing populist forces and maybe the far right in a number of countries, is it? Yes, I think that's a crucial question, given the conjunction that we're currently at, because we've already seen, and this is at the beginning, we have to emphasise that point, this is the beginning of the crisis, what we've seen in the last few months. We've seen these incredible uprisings taking place. And by the way, some of them have already, of course, begun before the pandemic hit, but we've seen the outpouring of anger of mass uprisings in the Lebanon, called to revolution. We've seen movements in Iraq. We've seen mass movements in Algeria, a whole series of countries and demonstrators taking to the streets. We saw the Black Lives Matter movement, all the features in that sense of revolution and a demand for change, an outpouring of anger. The problem has been is that many of these movements and the majority of these movements have tended to be spontaneous. We've seen the absence of mass workers' parties are present in them, lack of organisation within these movements. And of course, we've seen the limits now of spontaneity being threatened because of the absence of a clear alternative to the existing regime. Now, if you look at the broad political position, We've had upheaval and disquiet, bitter anger reflected as the consequences of this crisis. But we've also seen the emergence in some countries of the far right or right wing populist forces have developed. Mainly electorally, it's true. But nevertheless, in some countries, they've gone further than that. And really, those forces have been able to step in in a very opportunistic and populist manner because of the vacuum which has existed. And of course, they're a right wing reactionary character. They played on the fears of people about the economy, about the lockdown, the opposition of people to the existing regimes and governments in many countries. But it's the threat of reaction. And this is the nature of the era that we are now in. If the left and the socialists and the workers' movement does not build viable mass alternatives, then people will look elsewhere for a solution. And of course, that will involve the populist right with their racist rhetoric being echoed. And in some countries, we see the emergence of far-right, semi-fascistic groups, not mass forces, but nevertheless movements which can be a warning because they can be used as an auxiliary by the ruling class, as maybe we'll come on to discuss a little bit later. But they are key features of elements of the counter-revolution which are there elements of reaction. There's other aspects of it as well, which are demonstrated in terms of the features of reaction which can be present. We've seen the beginnings of disintegration of some nations, the breakup, particularly in Africa, of some countries is a measure of a sort of social collapse which is gripping some countries which have been the most devastated by this crisis. Yes, the seeming strength of the right-wing populist governments really is an indication of their weakness, a fear of the mass movements, as you've explained. And their increase in authoritarian, repressive-type measures is also, of course, a indication of their fear of what you know these protest movements from below. And clearly, special measures are necessary for health reasons, but many governments are clearly accumulating powers which you know they intend to go beyond the needs of the health crisis. But I just wanted to ask you, you just used the word fascistic in your comments just then, and the statement does warn against labelling right-wing populists and the far right as well today as fascists in the classical sense of the term. Can you just briefly say why you think it was necessary to make those points in the statement? Well, I think that's a very important question. I think obviously we would understand and entirely sympathise with many youth and workers who would see some of these right-wing populist governments coming to power, carrying out to brutal policies, 
and introducing quite repressive elements of legislation. But if we're going to fight against them, we have to have a clear understanding of what we're fighting against. And the point that we were making in the statement is that it's not that these governments don't represent a threat, they do. They pose a very concrete threat to the interests of the masses where they're in power. Bolsonaro in Brazil and most definitely Modi in India is carrying out brutal repression at this stage. But despite the features of a repressive character that these right-wing populist regimes have, they're not comparable with what happened with fascism in the 1920s and the 1930s because that was a very distinct form of reaction. It was mass organisations which rapidly developed based on the middle class, lumpenized sections of the working class as well, drawn from a desperate position of the mass army of the unemployed which exists in the countries and the failure of a series of revolutions to be carried through successfully. And they built up as a weight of that, at a certain stage, mass forces. And they were brutal mass forces. But fascism, as it was classically anticipated, was then turned to by the capitalist class who lent their support to them, the Falange in Spain, Mussolini's forces in Italy, and of course the Nazis in Germany, out of fear of revolution. But they had a very specific objective those fascist forces. And that was to atomize, mobilizing these mass ranks of fascist thugs to atomize and to destroy and obliterate the organizations of the working class and to atomize the working class as a class. Now, we see repressive measures being carried through, but there is a difference between that type of movement, which existed in the 20s and the 30s, to what we see today with the more right-wing populist forces. Now, some of them can have a bit of a mixed character. If you look, for example, at the Modi regime in India, it stands at the head of the BJP, the largest political party in the world, I think with 100 million members. But then he has a substantial force in the RSS, which is there, which has a fascistic element about it, which goes much further than that. And we therefore need to distinguish what we're dealing with. I mean, Trump in the US is a vicious reactionary, you know, carrying out quite authoritarian and brutal measures. Bolsonaro is a vicious reactionary, introducing repressive measures in relation to Brazil. But they're not of the same order and they don't have the same social base as what the fascist movements did in the 1920s and the 30s because the social conditions have existed and have changed rather in terms of the current position. Now that doesn't mean to say that in some countries the capitalists won't use these smaller militias or groupings or fascistic type of organisations as a certain auxiliary to try and intimidate and attack the workers. But it's a somewhat different scale to what we saw in the 1920s and the 30s because the social conditions are different. OK, thanks. So that's an important qualification when analysing the forces on the right. Now, the situation in the United States obviously features quite prominently in these statements especially bearing in mind the coming presidential election in the US. And the statement mentions the sweeping Black Lives Matter movement, but it also mentions the right-wing militias that have increased in a number of cities of the US, the violent clashes that have taken place. Now, could you just make a comment perhaps on what impact those events and that situation is having in the US, but also on the election, the coming election? Well, what it is featured, I mean, those events have taken place reflecting the incredible social crisis 
which faces US imperialism at the present time. It is almost unparalleled in terms of the economic devastation which is being wreaked on the mass of the population, of this incredible polarisation which has taken place under the Trump administration in particular. But that's a reflection of the class polarisation which was breaking in US society itself. And it's gone to an incredible degree. I mean, if you look at the processes unfolding in the US presidential elections, for any viewers who have watched the American version of House of Cards, which was very dramatic, I mean, that is paled into significance. I mean, it makes it look like a docile stroll in the park, what Underwood was doing in that particular TV series compared to what Trump has been up to in the course of the past period and what he's doing now in the run-up to the election. So these militias which you've developed, which you have mentioned, I mean, it's a reflection of the crisis. There is an element of civil war taking place. We shouldn't exaggerate it, but there are elements posed in that in a degree of polarisation, which is assumed armed clashes at the present time. And there you can see the point that we were making in response to your previous question about the forces involved. You have all sorts of forces involved within this particular struggle. But some of them, you had Trump appealing to them. He refused in the presidential debate to condemn openly the white supremacists, which is a scandalous position, which, of course, immediately polarised the situation still further. But he really was giving a warning when he said to the militias, the Proud Boys, you know, stand down, but be ready because that is an indication that he intends, if he can get away with it, and that's a big if, to make a fight of it. Even if he loses the popular vote, even if he loses the electoral college, that he won't recognise the result. He'll take it to be fought out in the Supreme Court, which he's trying to stack against him. And if necessary, some of his forces will take to the streets. And I mean, it's not the general position of Trump supporters, but in that particular militia that he mentioned, the Proud Boys, I mean, some of them are fascistic forces involved in that. And he'll try and use them as a bit of an auxiliary. Now, we shouldn't exaggerate their size. I mean, we've got to take into account the scale of the American population, the mass opposition, which is there to Trump. But he is trying to play with this. He has a route to try and, in effect, nullify it's an attempt of a former coup, is what he appears to be planning at this stage, to remain in the White House, to refuse to leave, to take it to the Congress, to decide the outcome of the election, if necessary, the Supreme Court, which he's uh, trying to stack. And by the way, he's encountered a little bit of a setback there, not only himself having contracted coronavirus, but three Republican senators have also contracted coronavirus. He's made this nomination to try and pack the Supreme Court in preparation for rigging the election by nominating Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court. But the three senators Senators who've contracted coronavirus have now cost him his majority in the Senate and the rules in the US Senate are you have to be there and vote in person. So it's going to pose a little bit of a problem for him. He might get around that by delaying the vote a little bit, hoping that they recover or change the rules. I mean, all rules are up to be rewritten under this particular US president, but it's going to be a battle royal in the run-up to the campaign. I see today, he's just, or a couple of days ago, he's announced that he's now not prepared to debate further with Biden because it's going to be a virtual debate. He said it's a waste of his time dealing with that. What that indicates, we have to see. But the election is wide open. Biden's ahead in the polls at this stage, the national polls. It's a bit more closer in some of the swing states and the impact that can have on the electoral college is somewhat open. But Trump, even if he loses, the popular vote and the electoral colleges is preparing to challenge that and what that could mean. I mean, it's an incredible position, if you think about it, where his opponent, Biden, has even raised the spectacle of calling upon the military to escort Trump out of the White House if he refused to leave. Incidentally, the generals <laughs> declined that offer and said it wouldn't be them, the police and the secret services would have to do it. They don't really want to get involved in this if they can avoid it. But it's a measure of the crisis. And a point we have to emphasize in this is that even if Trump is defeated, 
he stands down or he doesn't recover from the coronavirus, if Pence is defeated, if Biden comes in and wins, this is not going to resolve the crisis in US society. That is now a permanent feature. And what is posed as an urgent necessity, a crucial task now, is crying out for in the US is the emergence of a new independent party of the working class. The vacuum which is there is enormous. Over 50% of American youth now support the idea of socialism being preferable to a capitalist society. Whether they fully understand what socialism means is another question. But it's a measure of the sea change which is taking place and it's a struggle taking place between the classes in the US but it poses the need for a real alternative, which unfortunately Biden is not offering in the course of the election campaign. Yeah, certainly not. Now, clearly, Trump did not plan to have an economy in acute crisis as he went into the presidential election. But there's been massive sums of money put into trying to resurrect the economy, not just in the US, but other countries across the world as well. Will these sums of money have an effect in the US, but also in the other major capitalist economies? Can these sums of money return economies to growth? And what about people's jobs? What about unemployment? Are they going to be able to stop a huge rise in unemployment across the globe? Well, I think that that's the critical question, Judy, that you posed there, because we've seen the stimulus packages, emergency measures introduced. I mean, it's trillions and trillions. I mean, I don't think anybody yet now has calculated what the total amount of money poured into the world economy during this crisis is. The last figure I saw, which is now out of date because of the new amounts that have been poured in in Britain, in America and elsewhere, was over $20 trillion globally has been put in by the main capitalist economies. I mean, it's an incredible amount which has been poured in. And they've had to do that in order to try and prevent a complete collapse taking place of their economies. Now, what has that done? Well, I think it's had a certain effect. We can't deny, say it's had no effect. It has prevented a complete collapse, but it plunged them into the worst economic position that they've had for decades. And for a period, it plunged crucial economies back into a worse position than they had in the 1930s. Now, the furlough schemes, the state money that was given out partly alleviated the effects of that. That's coming to an end now. And of course, we see somewhat of a change in the position. But what they're not going to be able to do, despite the pumping in of that money, the striking thing is they put all of the trillions into the global economy. It's averted a complete collapse, but it's not prevented crucial economies, the majority of the countries. It's difficult to think of one that's not devastatingly affected by this crisis. It's still left those key economies in the depths of recession and some of them in outright depression. You have a tsunami of unemployment. It's about to hit certainly the UK and it's already hit the United States in the course of the past period. Leave aside what's happened in the neo-colonial world. And the same applies in relation to Spain, to Italy and other key capitalist economies as well. And while there has been, and there may be a certain ephemeral bounce back from the initial collapse which took place really because of the shutdowns and the lockdowns, I mean a certain upturn in production was taking place, they're not going to go back to the position that they had certainly pre-2007 2008 and we saw the consequences of that economically and in terms of the social political upheavals that took place it's already worse than that position and in my view it's going to remain worse than that position there might be a certain bounce back but as we put it in the documents they're just going to stumble from one crisis to another there was an impending debt crisis waiting to explode in the neo-colonial world, particularly in Africa and Latin America and indeed elsewhere. And the central problem they have is that they've used this corona crisis 
to accelerate a process of attacking living standards, increasing the exploitation of the working class, together with a massive rise of unemployment. And the question is, where's the market? People do not have the resources and the money to buy. And capitalism needs a market. And that's the underlying problem that they have, which they're not resolving at this particular stage. And I think what we've seen in the application of these stimulus packages, where they just jumped, I mean, it was incredible. In the space of two days, all of the neoliberal propaganda and neoliberal philosophy of no state intervention, let the markets rip and rule, was just thrown out of the window and was jettisoned by every capitalist class in the world. And they went back to state intervention, stimulus packages. They've accumulated this massive debt And now what you see is they're going to attempt to come back and make the working class pay again for that to increase taxes, prices, etc. So they're not resolving any problems. And what these stimulus packages have revealed, they've gone back, if you like, to the old Keynesian policies, but it's revealed the limitations of Keynesianism as far as being able to resolve a crisis of this particular depth of this conjuncture in the history of capitalism. So we're in it really for a decade of permanent mass unemployment. And for the younger generation, it's an horrific situation, which is going to open up of joblessness and unemployment and poverty, the like of which the youth have not seen in the course of the past decades in the advanced capitalist countries. And that is now going to rain down on people and is already provoking political and social convulsions. Well, that is clearly a devastating picture for working class people, for the middle layers in society across the globe. When you look at those consequences that we're seeing, which you just spelt out graphically, But what are the left trade union leaders and trade union leaders in general doing in terms of protecting the living standards of working class people? And what's the situation regarding those more on the left, those nominally on the left, at least, of the former social democratic parties, the so-called communist parties across the globe and so on? What are they doing to fight against this situation to protect people's living standards? Well, this is one of the greatest tragedies of the situation because just as the workers are being put under the hammer, being viciously attacked, being laid off, I think it's true that in general, with a few noticeable exceptions, but in general, the trade union bureaucracy globally has put itself in quarantine. And it's been absent without leave in terms of lifting a finger, frankly, to take any steps to protect the working class who are suffering from these horrific consequences. There's no serious struggle has been conducted Many of the trade union leaders have tried to, in effect, shut up shop during this crisis with the structures not functioning. Of course, they function on a somewhat different basis, but some sort of workplace initiatives were possible. But they've not, in general, organised any meaningful struggle. And we've seen that reflected in a whole series of countries, even in countries where you have seen them because of the pressure which has existed, where they've been compelled to formally call action. They just then either called the action off or just abandoned the struggle completely. The most graphic state was in Nigeria, where the trade unions convened a general strike against the increase in fuel prices and electricity costs. They convened a strike against it. They then go and negotiate with the government and are completely convinced by the government's case who said they were bankrupt. So the trade union leaders put their hands up and in effect just said, OK, the government can't afford it. We accept what they say. There's nothing we can do. The strike's off and just called it off overnight. And that's a graphic illustration of a story which could be repeated in country after country where they've absented themselves and it has highlighted the need 
for a struggle to take place to organise workers in and around the trade unions to reclaim the trade unions and to transform them into fighting combative organisations of the working class, which the workers desperately need in terms of facing up to this crisis which has now taken place. Strikes are not going to be enough with this onslaught of redundancies. It's going to be a question of initiating occupations of the workplaces to defend jobs, demanding nationalisation and fighting for companies to be nationalised, for the books to be opened, to see where the profits have gone and what the employers have done and how they've squandered the resources available to them. Them. And tragically, what has happened with the trade union leaders has also been echoed by the official left leaders of the former social democratic, socialist and Labour parties who've capitulated to capitalism, have accepted the idea, the propaganda of the ruling class, of the need for national unity, for everybody to come together. And unfortunately, even the new left, the so-called new left around Podemos in Spain, the Linker in Germany and other such forces, have swallowed the argument and have simply followed behind what the social democratic parties have done. Podemos goes into the government with Pessoa in Spain. We see them supporting the government's policy in a whole series of other countries and not offering any alternative whatsoever because they're trapped in the prism of simply thinking within the framework of capitalism and are not prepared to think out of the box and pose the issue of the need for a new society, a socialist society, a democratically socialist plan of the economy to be introduced. They're not prepared to pose that. So in the depth of this crisis, as the crisis has got deeper and worsened, they've gone further to the right because they're in prison within the system. And it poses the need very sharply to build a real combative fighting mass socialist parties of the working class that are going to struggle not only to defend workers' interests and their rights today, but linking those day-to-day struggles with the need for a complete transformation of the system because capitalism in this area has now plunged into a prolonged, protracted death agony, which is opening up a dystopian future for the mass of the world's population. Yes, and we clearly need to strongly counterpose working class unity as against this so-called national unity, which you've touched on in your remarks, which is being pushed by governments. And we're seeing, as you said, trade union leaders, former social democratic leaders and so on, falling behind that mantra which really means this national unity means a unity of classes. In other words, cutting across struggle by working class people against the ruling classes. Now, the last question I want to pose, Tony, is really what is the role of CWI members in this tumultuous period? How can we advance the forces of Marxism through what we do around the world today? Well, I think that's the crucial question, because our task now is to intervene in these struggles, not to be mere commentators. It's not a question of commentating on the sidelines, but to be in the forefront of the struggles to defend workers' rights, taking up all of the struggles against racism, of the attacks on labour rights, fighting against the repressive legislation which is being brought in by a series of governments around the world at this particular stage, and of linking that with the need to build mass socialist alternatives. And by providing ideas of how to take the struggle forward, of what forms of organisation are needed, of initiating action where we possibly can, CWI members and supporters can play a crucial role and assisting workers draw the right conclusions as to what is necessary to defeat capitalism. And we think by posing the issue of a socialist alternative and explaining what that programme means, the forces of the CWA can make an enormous contribution to assist workers in their day-to-day struggles, but also assist them 
in coming together to build new organizations and new parties. And in the course of that process, reaching out to other forces for discussion, for debate, to clarify the issues of program and tactics of struggle which are necessary, we believe the forces of the CWI in the coming period can be enormously strengthened, which can be an additional lever to assist workers in their struggles that we're going into in this tumultuous period of capitalist crisis. Thanks. So our task is to raise consciousness, build consciousness on the need for a socialist programme, but also on how to build the mass forces spearheaded by the working class that can deliver on that programme, as Tony has just explained. Now, with those points, I'm going to bring this broadcast to an end. First of all, thanking Tony very much for responding to these questions. Thanking all the viewers of it for watching it, for listening to what we've had to say. I would urge anyone to get in touch with us if you would like to get involved in your country in the discussions that are taking place within the CWI. If you're able to make a donation, please go on our website, socialistworld.net, and you can contact us through that website for other discussion as well, as I've just said. So with those remarks, we'll end this broadcast today. Thank you. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Judy Beeson and Tony Sonwa, and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The Socialist Event of the Year will be Socialism 2020. It's an open forum of discussion and debate over four days, the 20th to the 23rd of November. You can join hundreds of socialists, trade unionists and working class fighters to discuss the way forward in this unprecedented crisis of capitalism. We're scheduling it online, but if in-person sessions become possible, which is looking unlikely at this point, you can upgrade your ticket near the time. Read more and book now at socialism2020.net. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.